It's the Occult Mr. Podcast, where we talk about the mysteries hidden behind Mickey. Welcome to the Occult Disney Podcast, where we look for magic inside and outside a mouse. Wow, that's the worst version that I've done so far. Okay. <laughs> uh, this is Matt here with me today's the Paranoid American. Thomas, hi. I'm going to give that one another shot, too. <clears throat> Welcome yeah. to the Occult Disney Podcast, <clears throat> where we tear open the mouse and search for the occult bits and giblets. <laughs> What, what is that what is that call right though you tell the future with entrails <laughs> oh yeah yes I, I don't know the exact name for it, like scrying so instead of the tea leaves if you want to get a little bit messier right right get into that so but that's not what we're talking about today we we're talking about mr toad um were you a fan of the ride were you in orlando by uh, when mr toad was was rolling i definitely was Although, as far as I can recollect, I know I've ridden in a few times, but as far as I can recollect, there was like this little area at that particular part of the Magic Kingdom where it was the outside Dumbo ride, which was almost explicitly for babies. And then there was It's a Small World. And then there was Mr. Toad's Wild Ride. We're all sort of in the similar <laughs> vicinity. And I just remember just kind of like breezing right past that whole area and going to the cooler rides and not to these particular ones. Because, uh, again, the, uh, this one was all, even Mr. Toad's Wild Ride was always more of like a, a children's ride, at least in terms of the speed and the mechanics of it. I Yeah, I, I liked I liked the absurdity of it. I think also my visits to Florida, we went when I was a very small child and that was my jam. You know, that was like I was four years old. <clears throat> Excuse me. And a couple trips after that, uh, I think we just went to MGM and Epcot. So I didn't go back to the Magic Kingdom until I was like 20. And then it was like, you know, I, ironic and fun again. Right. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, I had to look it up and it's it's gone now. I don't know how long it's been gone for. Probably like a decade or so. Um, longer than that. But, I think it's 97. <laughs> so, yeah. So Mr. Toe's Wild Ride is gone. And there is now a little headstone outside of the Haunted Mansion that says, here lies Mr. You know, Toad. Oh, well, well, all toads have to die. Uh, they still have it in California. Do all toads go to heaven? <laughs> no, they go to hell. That's where you own the ride, right? <laughs> they send us to hell. True. I guess that is true. <clears throat> um, Tokyo, Tokyo does not have one. Yeah. But, uh, and yeah, the California one's still running. But the thing with the Florida one is it had two tracks that had were slightly different ride experiences. You'd actually get a few different show scenes depending on which line you got in. So, that was kind of cool. There was, uh, I'm probably going to get it wrong. There was like an Alice in Wonderland, I think, that did something similar. It might have been like a Sleeping Beauty. It was It was one of the Disney princess rides that had a very similar thing. Like the, like once you actually got into line, right before they board you up, they send you on one side or the other side, and they both have like slightly different experiences. Yeah, while we're talking about um, weird rides, another one that does not exist anymore and act was legitimately terrifying was in uh, Tokyo where they had the uh, the castle tour. Have you ever heard of this? Uh, you're going to have to explain it to me because I've, I've heard of Castle Tour, but it's more of like a VIP experience here in Orlando. Well, we'll talk about it a little bit more um, when we get to the Black Cauldron because it's it's 
themed after that but um it's like you see oh a little castle like castle tour it's like oh cool like there's an actual attraction in the tokyo castle so you go in and it you end up in this dungeon with an anima terrifying animatronic dragon and it's you know scary noises it's real dark kids cry i mean it's uh yeah it's it's like disney's scariest attraction ever probably and it's just like it's this little door castle tour you know <laughs> So that's that's probably why it's not there anymore. But it was great. It was really cool. So you can. Did you ever get to ex- um, <clears throat> go on the Alien Experience? I think that was what it was called, or Alien Encounters. I did not. Um, yeah, I, I don't. I didn't even like it in the Honey I Shrunk the Audience thing where they bop you in the back of the uh, back. So I, I wasn't really. Uh, I don't think I was in Florida when that when they. Excuse me. That only ran a few years, if I remember. So it was short lived for the same reason, because <clears throat> they had way too many people complaining that it scared them and that they brought it was basically right in the middle of like Tomorrowland, which was kind of I mean, I, I guess, you know, futuristic alien invasion. But everything else in Tomorrowland is so very much like retro futuristic 1950s, 1960s. Um, you know, everything's got like a glean and a smile to it and everything's very happy go lucky. And then you go on an alien encounters and it just the terrified children and people would leave it screaming. I actually really liked it. It felt so out of place. It was definitely better than honey. I shrunk the audience or whatever that was called. Uh, that one was kind of annoying. The thing you're mentioning where they would like poke, poke you in the back or something. The alien one had little air jets next to your neck and your ears. So as it would walk up, they would simulate it walking up and down the aisles and it would come up behind you. It was all like an audio experience. So you'd have like headphones on or something. Um, or they had like little speakers that were mounted inside the chair to give you like that 3D spatial feel. And they would make it seem as though this alien was right behind you. And they'd use the little air blasters to make it so it's like sniffing you. It would like come <laughs> up on you and you'd feel like the air coming in and out. Uh, and then it was just, you know, it had like some loud kind of like shock, uh, scary little moments jump scares and things like that <laughs> it was cool it was definitely cool like if you're kind of um dozing off a little bit just from walking around in the florida sun all day it would wake you up a little bit because it would legitimately felt like something was you know uh trying to attack you so i, oh. I appreciate it for the short-lived experience that i had it was also net man it was narrated by like oh not tony um it was never like vanessa williams or something i'll have to look this up but it had like a like a pretty big celebrity voiceover that did the narration for it as well rather incongruous sounding one with vanessa williams did she sing it <laughs> uh, it was not it was not sung I, I, and i might i have to eat that those words but uh <laughs> that, that seems yeah that's i i hope that's what it is because it's so weird but uh I couldn't say no. The, the Tokyo one with the castle tour, I think it lasted almost 20 years. So they were, you know, making kids poop themselves for a couple of decades in that case. So <laughs> <laughs> uh, I guess they had spent the money on their animatronic dragon. So, you know, you got to get your value out of that. <laughs> oh, yeah, so also- the, the full name of it was Extraterrestrial Alien Encounter, which even when it was brand new, it was such a weird such a mouthful and i never really fully understood what it was until you actually get in line and sit in the thing because the <laughs> the name it's the name's got like four names inside of it yeah yeah it's like the teams never got together to decide what the thing's actually called so each modular part is maybe a different name <laughs> everyone got to donate one one word to the name the final name <laughs> um speaking of modular movies i guess we should start talking about today's movie which is uh the uh, 
Here's another well, and, title. I and by the way, it was Tyra about. Banks. It was it was voiced by Tyra Banks and Tim Curry. So imagine those two voices in this <laughs> alien experience in Tomorrowland. It was it was a product of its time for sure. <laughs> yeah, I think Tim Curry is on like a few attractions, which is is pretty wild. Um, I'm sitting here. I, I I headlined my notes as Mr. Headless Toad. So I didn't write the proper name of this this movie which I guess is the adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad. Is that, is that the proper title here? And it's a little bit confusing because it's not really the adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad. It's the adventures of, you know, Ichabod comma and the adventures of Mr. Toad, two completely different things that don't relate to each other. Right. But then you need to like flip the order, right? Cause uh, Mr. Toad comes first. <laughs> so it's uh, it's confusing in, in many respects. <laughs> <clears throat> I, I usually have the name of the movie, like, in my lap but that's on the ipad that i'm recording on today so uh, so how much do you remember this actual movie i feel like i feel like the ichabod crane part they showed in school like i definitely remember seeing the ichabod crane part outside of this movie as like a dual feature i remember seeing that as its self it might have been on the disney channel a few times it might have been yeah i might have seen it in school i don't remember exactly all the places but i I remember that one way more than the Mr. Toad adventure. Yeah, it's before our vintage, but in the 50s and 60s, when they'd show this on TV, they uh, filmed like a 14-minute prologue beforehand about the history of Washington and Irving and stuff. But apparent, the, according to Wiki, at least, that's never been on a home video release. So um, it is no longer to be found. But I do wonder if somehow maybe they showed me that in school because that sounds familiar. Like maybe somebody had like, I don't know, taped it off of something and showed it in the third grade classroom or something. Yeah, it was interesting how like old VHS versions would float around. I've I've got a couple good friends that are big into film and there's this whole laundry list of VHS releases that never got re-released in DVD form. Or like once they make it to DVD or Blu-ray, for example, they'll take like a three hour, what used to be a three hour movie and turn it into like a 77 minute version of it. And that three hour version that was only on VHS just only exists on VHS. And if you never obtain a <clears throat> physical VHS copy, you'll just never see the original version of it. Well, I remember the weird time when there was like major movies not on DVD yet. So <laughs> I mean, it was a big deal when Citizen Kane came out on DVD because it was one of the uh, long time holdouts, I believe, to, from getting released that way. <laughs> And there's still a number of movies that are only on DVD and never made the next jump to Blu-ray or whatever comes after that. You know, the 8K, 12K releases. No, they, they I've got, probably I've got a whole now. laundry list. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, that's, <laughs> I mean, you could just keep waiting until, you know, some some other final version comes out. I assume that once TVs get better definition than our eyes can handle, then maybe that stops. Who knows? I mean, since I have the... Um movable camera today i'm i'm still relatively obsessed with uh physical media here <laughs> as i have a clunky shelf of lots of physical media and you know if you're into it you go buy it you know it's a relatively cheap now people will hemorrhage rental stuff now so that's kind of nice at least it's in japan <clears throat> but i have weird... always an issue yeah I mean, I had the weird experience. You see, people still do rental in Japan, which is weird. I, I just a month ago, I'm like in the, the the rental store with my daughter and my wife, and you know, walking the aisles. I'm like, man, this is not an experience Americans have had since like 2011 or something. <laughs> Unless you're doing it ironically. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. 
I mean, you know, every town still has like that one video store, I think. Uh, I've been told Atlanta does at least. So, Orlando, I've seen one in Orlando, but uh, again, it like it feels like you're going there for the experience of renting a video more so than you just wanted to watch a movie. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Should we go in title order and talk about Ichabod first since we're kind of already on the topic anyway? <laughs> uh, yeah, sure. Yeah, that makes that makes sense. We can yeah, end yeah. on dude. I mean, like you said, there's I, I guess in my head they had sort of a um, you know, regional legend connection. Like they, they kind of fit together, I guess. Here's like the whimsical British story, and here's the um the American version of that whimsical story. So or like a similar vibe because all we had I, I remember growing up because now disney and star wars and marvel those are the american legends right but uh beforehand i was like well what is it paul bunyan and uh and ichabod crane i guess it's about it <laughs> they mentioned it in Pe- uh pecos bill and there's like a few others that are very western uh in nature and actually they mentioned that in the middle of the movie after it ends on toad and it goes into ichabod it's like and now Here's a bunch of American, you know, stories. And sure enough, Paul Bunyan and, right. um, you know, Pecos Bill and uh, Ichabod Crane comes up. So it, it's the, just Ichabod Crane is an interesting one because it comes out of Sleepy Hollow. And even before the Sleepy Hollow legends um, came into being, Sleepy Hollow was already a very affluent town. Like you've got Astors that are buried there. You've got uh, the Chrysler family, the Mills family, a lot of the Carnegie family, a lot of huge, huge like American dynasties. They all got land and house, um, you know, and, and housing at Sleepy Hollow. And many of them are buried there today. So a uh, part of me also that we're going to find out there's this reoccurring theme where like rich people love stories written by and for rich people. It's like FUBU for, you know, like a, a bunch of like, rich uh europeans so essentially it's a story about a rich town by a rich guy um so it it kind of feels a little bit self-serving but i think it also explains why some of these very specific stories end up getting traction and longevity it's like you know if if you've got all these families that have been around forever and keep funding it of course that's gonna kind of like stay inside of the, the the zeitgeist for a while yeah, I was talking to a friend yesterday who was, um, I said I was doing this podcast and he was like, oh, oh, so you're doing Sleepy Hollow. I'm like, oh, no, no, I've, I've actually never seen that movie, <laughs> which. Um, it's a great movie, actually. <clears throat> that's what I mean, he it's, said. A li- it's a little bit dated for the time and the special effects, but I th- I think it was a great movie. I mean, just, yeah, imagine Tim Burton um, mixing with the the cartoon here that we saw. I guess that's about the last time Tim Burton did a movie that, where you're just like, like, he's, he's trying too hard to be Tim Burton, you know, <laughs> yeah, big fish was after that, I suppose. But yeah, yeah. it's, it's... I love the big fish. You be careful. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I, I, no. I was saying that came after Sleepy Hollow. It's a pretty good okay, one. Okay. So, yeah. Um, but then you Sleepy Hollow like... was way more of like, uh, I mean, you know, I would almost equate it to the Twilight series in a, in a way where it was like, they got the, the teen heartthrobs together and threw a bunch of angsty sort of gothic, you know, like sexual tension in there. And then just lots of dramatic lighting and almost music video. It's almost like a hype Williams meets Tim Burton production in, in some ways. I, I guess um, that came out around 2000, 1999, something like that. So that, at that point, I think I just would have been um, 
you know, I didn't go into the hot topic, right? I, I wasn't into that vibe. So yeah, if no, if you liked hot topic, you definitely saw <clears throat> Sleepy Hollow. Right. Whereas I didn't go in the hot topic, so I didn't see okay. Sleepy Hollow. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they were I, they were mutually exclusive. <laughs> well, what, what was the story I'd stumble in in Athens? The, the junkman's daughter's brother. There's That's a the nice name computer. of a store. Yeah, because the junkman's daughter is in uh, Atlanta. So this is a satellite store in Athens, the, the college town. So it's they had they had to give it a different they couldn't just give it the same name, I guess. <laughs> Every, everyone loves a weird boutique store with like a you know an inside joke as the name. Yeah, yeah. Uh I'm taking a look at my notes here. I, I guess being an American, American lore always like as a small child seemed kind of like not interesting. Where you're saying rich people like to have rich people stories told to them, right? I'm like, I didn't really. Well, and we're going to gonna see that with Mr. Toad too. <laughs> it's it's another, and, oh, yeah. and we we've seen that with a number of other stories that we've covered already. Um, the other one was 101 Dalmatians was a good example because it was like, okay, I get it. You know, the story makes sense. It makes sense that this would be made into a cartoon. But out of the hundreds and thousands and and you know infinite possibilities of books that were written. Why are, why was it these very specific ones? And I think it's because, you know, oh, my my rich friend in England has a daughter and the daughter just wrote this book and I want to garnish good favor with this particular family. So, you know, we love the book. We, we, the book's awesome. Uh, th this had another example of, of the Mr. Toad without getting too much into it, but like Theodore Roosevelt within a couple years after it being published was praising and saying, you know, oh, I'm reading this to my kids um at night you know when they're in bed but i really do think it was just like a bunch of rich people spreading the wealth amongst themselves yeah the aristocrats there's another one that we just yeah. did recently <laughs> that's another good example yeah i said cats or crats i don't even know what i said at this point uh it's hard yeah it's, it's hard to work those out in this discussion but but i've got in um <clears throat> in the sleepy hollow cemetery i mean we could spend the entire episode just discussing like how much wealth and fame is inside of Sleepy Hollow Cemetery. But like I mentioned, the Astors, the Carnegies, the Chrysler family, um, Floyd Crosby, who was the father of David Crosby's there. You've got Rockefellers. You've got the Ford family, the Fox family, the Hamilton family, as in Alexander Hamilton. <laughs> um, you've got the Irving, uh, the Irving families, you've got the Mills family, um, which were very popular, um, like a whole list of rock, like the Rockefellers have their own section on here. Um, and then it also has uh, Thomas J. Watson. Um, and if Watson, as in like the IBM Watson computer, this is the guy that came up with the adding machines and turned IBM into like a com computing powerhouse. So that's like I just read like one percent of all of the huge names that are listed in the Sleepy Hollow Cemetery. So it's it would be almost impossible to understate how affluent this tiny little chunk of land is compared to the rest of the entire planet. Yeah, actually, kind of have um, where I live in, in Nagano, Japan. There's there's that sort sort of that kind of town. Karazawa is sort of the um. I guess sort of like a Aspen or something. Where, where do the rich people hang out out West in America now? Um, <laughs> but they just had one of the G7 things there. And um, uh, I think John Lennon hung out there in the 70s. So the, a lot of, like in Japan, that's where the the power meetings are when they're not in Tokyo, basically. <laughs> Although Sleepy Hollow seems more like you'd have the ghosts, um, you know, having meetings, meetings of ghosts. <laughs> 
I mean, if anyone had unfinished business, it was definitely those oil magnates of the, the early 20th century. <laughs> Does that come through much in the Burton film? I mean, do, do any of the film versions like touch on this? Because this one certainly doesn't. It does not. It definitely does not touch on that particular aspect of it. Um, although, I mean, everyone in the movie is definitely looks very affluent, but that's probably just because it's a movie. Yeah, it's animated. You can make them look nice, you know. So um, I, I did think, you know, th- this movie was notable at the time for having Bing Crosby narrating and singing in this section, Basil Rathbone, the first. I'm like, man, these guys probably put in like an afternoon of work at most. That's, that's well, good for them. <laughs> Well, and it's also misleading because as the movie, which again is a double feature, opens up and it's like narrated by Bing Crosby and you get all excited, but you don't realize that he doesn't come until um, the Ichabod Crane story kicks in and there's like, you know, a half hour left in the whole thing. What's that? Him like right at the beginning and then you don't hear him for another 35 minutes, which is, you know, it's a great doobadoobadoo though. It's a great one. Yeah, I was like, oh, that's him. Okay, I assume that's him. I must, yeah, must be him. And the, the music is really good for the Sleepy Hollow portion of it. Uh, I don't <laughs> know if any of them are necessarily like earworms that you would uh, take with you and, you know, start incorporating and singing outside the movie. But um, for the duration of the movie, they're completely appropriate and not and not annoying at all. They're actually pretty pleasant. Yeah, in production, both of these were kind of like, like Disney was like, the window and willows of course you would make a full length out of that and walt disney himself was like i cut it down cut it down make it just 20 minutes and you know i guess they just ended up on 30 in the end so so if if you (laughs) if you had to pick your favorite out of the two which would it be probably the second one but i have so much affinity for mr toad's wild ride it's it's it's, it's, it's me yeah it just pains me not to say mr toad but yeah ichabod definitely has a better like flow um you know more weirdly it has more character to it despite not having cute animal critters right so i was looking at the original movie reviews and almost across the board it was the opposite of that i i kind of agree with you i liked the ichabod crane story a little bit more all you know just objectively all things considered but um the original movie reviews people absolutely praised and raved about the mr toad portion and said that it was deeper and it had all of these like satirical um sort of commentary on on life and then while the ichabod story was more of a soulless just kind of retelling of a known story and that they didn't take care to establish unique personalities or any sort of like longer lasting deeper seated uh like lesson to be told it's just kind of like here's the story and then oh by the way it ends the end um which which i kind of agree i guess in a little bit of a way because it does sort of just end abruptly uh but it's it's far more entertaining to me and also probably just because i remember seeing that one way more often almost i almost want to say like every time around halloween or something you would see that particular cartoon pop up in some kind of form yeah, uh, and I'm thinking when I was younger, I sure I as a kid I would have gone with Mr. Toad because it's you know it's cuter, right? <laughs> but I guess it, yeah, it's just interesting because now I'm thinking about history. Maybe the story isn't quite in the public consciousness as deeply as it was around you know the 1940s. You're talking about the um, the Ichabod Crane story, the Headless Horseman story? Yeah, well, I guess we got the Sleepy Hollow movie not that long ago. Because that could... story was from the late 1890s, <laughs> I believe. So it's mm. it's definitely 
old at this point. Yeah, but maybe it was some like uh, again. I'm just maybe I'm colored by having lived in Japan so long and like barely thinking about this until I'm faced with this movie, right? So, is there no headless horseman equivalent in uh, Japan anywhere? Oh, there's plenty of creepy stuff. It's just you know not that. Uh, what is it? It's very specific. I mean, <laughs> I, I feel like the headless horseman is uh, is such a specific story, but. I probably predominantly remember it because of the cartoon, not necessarily because I saw so much other media about it. It's it really was from this particular Disney cartoon that I think I know it the best. Yeah, and I know I read the book at some point, like a very long time ago. Um, but I do feel like this was screened in the in the elementary classroom, maybe you know before or after we were going to like the uh, history center, you know, like. Maybe they showed it in the History Center. I, I don't remember. So, yeah, this is all, this is all em- memories from like 1988 or something. So, <laughs> so, so that this is, was interesting to me because, again, the Ichabod one was a lot more interesting, I think. But looking into the background of Wind in the Willows, um, so I, I guess are we ready to move on to Wind of the Willows or do you have more about the Ichabod Crane story? Uh, just the, the, I did find early on, like, with Ichabod and uh, Brahm, Brahm, I, I, at first I heard Brahm's the composer, which was wrong, and uh, Katrina, I just started feeling like this Elmer Fudd, Bugs and Daffy energy, you know, like Katrina's Bugs and Drag, and uh, we kind of have the Elmer Fudd, Daffy Duck rivalry sort of going on. I, I just wonder, since that was a popular thing at Warner at the time, I wondered if they had maybe modeled it a little bit on that. And I also noticed uh, looking at the credits that Mel Blank did Ichabod's Cranes laughing. Really? That's kind of funny. <laughs> Not the voice, <laughs> so there, just the laughing. So there is a, a Bugs Bunny link in there somewhere. Yeah, right after, like I wrote that note and then saw that. I was like, eh, there might be something there. But, and Braun reminded me of Gaston uh, a whole lot. He had like that same physique and look and almost the same role within the town he was the same archetype like the big strong you know like the hunk of the town that is like the most natural match for katrina who's kind of like the princess of the town one one thing that stood out that it doesn't come across in the cartoon as much but in the original story ichabod crane doesn't actually care about katrina as a person she just comes from wealth. She comes from a rich family. And that's what attracts him towards Katrina in particular versus all the other women in, in the village. Because they mentioned that Ichabod Crane, even though he's like this big, goofy um, kind of guy, and he's like very effeminate and just like looks strange. They have like a little song about how his feet are like, you know, he's got these like big clunky feet, but all the women just love him. Like they just fall in love with them. Um, but he has his eyes on Katrina again for her money. And it's not, it's not, he doesn't have any like great redeeming <clears throat> qualities at any point in the story. You know, he's kind of a gold digger in a way. <laughs> yeah. I like that. She invites him to a, a frolic, you know, I, I was hoping when he opened the door that he'd find like an eyes wide shut sort of party, which <laughs> sounds like isn't actually that far from what you could expect in this, in this sort of town. It's a square pedigree. So <laughs> that was the, uh, the adult version for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the adult version. And, and then at the end of the cartoon, they mentioned that he doesn't actually 
die from the headless horseman they almost imply that the headless horseman was never real that he just worked himself up into this frenzy and that everyone else in town just assumes that he died from the headless horseman but really he just found another rich lady in some other town and then married her and had like nine kids and the end well my last note is still i guess ichabod is in hell now <laughs> I mean, why, would he, why would he be in hell <laughs> I don't know. I just tell them like fun to say it, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. Well, they call I, Christopher Robin, the antichrist. Yeah. 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 It's a, it, we can have a team of, um, <clears throat> twisted, uh, public domain legends. <laughs> <laughs> I, I definitely came away with the idea that Ichabod crane was a bit of a creeper. Uh, I don't know if incel would be the right word since apparently all the women in town were like simping over him, but um, he definitely had super creep vibes going on in this particular cartoon. He didn't seem like someone you'd want your daughter to get mixed up with. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to look for my... Well, I said I'd rock his style, though. I'd, I'd wear his, his dandy clothes. Sure, why not? <laughs> that's, that's a... Yeah, he absolutely looks like a Yankee Doodle dandy, which <laughs> was actually an insult. It was a way of calling Americans effeminate from, you know... <laughs> From the, the the European perspective, I mean, maybe that's what Anna Ant was doing back in the eighties, just trying to be a Kabad Crane with a bit more makeup on. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I definitely haunt the uh, ye old Schnooker and Schnapp shop. That that would be fun. Schnooker <laughs> <laughs> and Schnapps. <laughs> yeah, I um, I, I, no, I've mentioned you. I do the Twilight Zone podcast, and uh, I did actually just have an episode with kind of a similar vibe, which is not a comedy episode but to me played as a comedy episode so maybe i just think this kind of story is like inherently a little bit funny it's uh the lawman who who comes in town right after the um right after the town has actually killed the the bandit right so the lawman's a little too late like oh his ghost is going to kill you if you got to go to his grave at midnight and everyone's daring him to do it you know it's like how we know you're actually gonna do it he's like i'll stick my knife into the grave right so the next morning they find him and he's been strangled by his cloak, like sitting right next to the grave. So kind of a little bit of a headless horseman vibe there. Um, <laughs> That's one of those riddles where it's like <laughs> you find a person in a puddle of water, you know, strangled. <laughs> kind of. I mean, they tried there's the, the, the sister of the, the dead band. It's like, it was the wind. When we did the podcast, my, my guest was like, ah, she probably actually killed him. But <laughs> <laughs> I've seen enough first 48. I know how this turned out. <laughs> but yeah, it's, you know, it's supposed to be like a ghost story, creepy thing, but like the Ichabod segment is kind of funny. I just found it funny. It's got Lee Marvin being so serious that it, he, it turns out like a little bit Leslie Nielsen funny to me, you know? And then you got like the sheriff from the Dukes of Pajdai. You yellow, you gotta go out there. I was, this is hysterical. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone so, loves ghost stories. I don't think there's uh, necessarily an age when ghost stories lose their appeal. You might you might believe less in them, but I think that they always have that same creepy essence, which is why the story of the headless horseman and Ichabod Crane and these things can last so long. I think that they do have like some kind of interesting allure to them. Yeah. I'm going to bump my notes up to the toad then. Oh, yeah, we, we've been getting so many awesome 70s credit sequences. I was like, ah, this is a disappointment. And this one started. Well, because we rewinded the, the clock before they started getting into the cool the cool credits. That is true. I mean, that that's totally re the reason why. I was just like, oh, I've been spoiled by that. So, 
Um, well, and apparently <laughs> this movie was had been in production for like a super long time, like Snow White and the Seven Dwarves long time, and it just took them forever to finally crank it out. It took until the end of the war, essentially, uh, for Frank Thomas to get back into the studio, and then they finally finished it up. But I guess originally Walt um, said that it was it was too campy. Like he actually thought that it wasn't going to be good enough to to stand on its own merit. Yeah, uh, from when I saw this, this went into production right after Bambi. But like you said, the war derailed it. Um, there was a quote unquote final version, 1945 46, and that got shot down. That's where, um, you know, got another revision. So it's probably a pretty expensive one for them when you come to think of it. Well, and, and it's an interesting <clears throat> one too, because apparently the creditors of Bank of America at this point. They told Walt, they were like, look, you guys have got way too many like half finished movies and Disney wanted to start pitching even more movies that were going to come. And the the creditor, I guess, that they were dealing with at the bank was like, you know, not until you finish what's on your plate. And one of the things that was on the plate was this movie. So there, it was almost because of like the stickler at the bank was like, I don't care about, you know, how good the movie is or anything. It's been in production for too long you're going to finish this before we're going to cut you a check for any other new movies. So it was almost just like something that they had to do regardless. I guess he was ultimately okay with the results. Cause he did. I mean, he would have had to say the okay to the ride in Disneyland. Well, and the, again, like the critical reception for Mr. Toad was off the charts. It got overwhelmingly positive reviews and people just thought it was like the greatest thing. They love the music. They love the story. They love, uh, again, many people mention like the satirical take on modern sort of issues. And and this was talking about the advent of the Wrights brothers. Like that's how that's how old the story was, right? It starts out where he's got a horse and buggy and then he sees a motor car. And then at the very end, he gets fascinated with, you know, uh, a regular airplane. But at that point, it was like a 1903 Wright brothers airplane. And this, yeah, he can, Toad can still proudly proclaim that he's about to go drunk drive. You know, you can't really get away with that anymore. <laughs> well, again, this is this recurring theme in, in early Disney movies that being a town drunkard or even like if your dad or your uncle is absolutely has a drinking problem. That was always like a redeeming quality. It was never a negative thing. They were like the fun, happy guys. They just got kicked out of the bar and it's like, screw that bar. They don't know a good time, you know? <laughs> yeah, sure. Uh, I guess Toad is kind of a Nepo. Is he what we call a Nepo baby now? He's, he's living on a Oh, a, a, mil- a million percent. <laughs> Wait, way beyond just a Nepo baby. This, this was an autobiographical story for sure because the guy that wrote it, he was also a Nepo baby. He probably lived this exact life where daddy was super rich, super influential. You, you just never have to have a real job in your life. So your job is just finding out how to spend this obscene amounts of money. So of course, what else are you going to do? You're going to go and buy a horse and buggy and you're going to buy a car and you're going to buy a plane. <clears throat> and, and the reason why it was even a problem is I guess he was such a bad driver uh, toad now, not the author, maybe the author, but that he was just causing property damage left and right. Everywhere he went, he was just destroying people's property. And that was eating away at his inheritance, essentially. But but even in the book, Mr. Toad inherits money from his affluent family. And that's, you know, that's his cross to bear. Yeah, well, that that's that's what um, 
he did. Uh, the other choice is what climbing mountains and invoking the, the ancient ones through months long yeah. ceremonies. <laughs> go go yeah, go curly yeah, bang, style with your banging the nanny. Yeah, <laughs> go curly style with your inheritance. So yeah, there there. It's not like this is the only option. You know, there there are other things you could do if you wanted to. I suppose. <laughs> Um, well, I mean, it's funny you bring that up because I actually do think that there was some overlap between the author of uh, Wind in the Willows and Crowley. I think it's just that Crowley was probably 30 years or so younger. So he was just in a completely different social uh, class and probably wouldn't have come into contact. But um, the author was big into the Golden Dawn. He was big into paganism. Um, especially that that neo paganist movement that that was kind of like sweeping over Europe prior to World War uh, II, because you know then it got a bad rap because of a certain little group and their nasty little outfits. Um, but I mean, th- he literally wrote a, a series called the Pagan Papers, where he correlated all these ancient gods from you know Rome and Greek and and Phoenicia into just like regular english society and would have you know applied like the traits of mercury and zeus to different towns and different sort of professions so he he was way big into this kind of like pagan point of view um so i I do think that him and crowley would have probably shared a few of the same social circles even if they didn't necessarily overlap directly yeah, I mean, it's it's only been recently that cultism basically wasn't a, a rich person's game, you know? I mean, that's what the, the internet does. It, it lets people, you know, play around with this stuff. <laughs> that's a great point without getting on too much of a tangent. But, man, that's that's one of my favorite topics when it comes to, like, the satanic panic in America is, is a lot of people forget that Satanism was always accepted, or if you called it Luciferianism. But if it came through the Rosicrucians on the West Coast – where there was all sorts of money and affluence, it got a pass. Like you were allowed to do astrology. You were allowed to dabble in magic and all these esoteric arts. But if you were just like a poor villager bumpkin um, on the East coast in new England, like, you know, God help you. If you even get caught with uh, like a slightly apocryphal book that even if it's like, you're still Christian, you're still reading the Bible. If you didn't have the approved version, you might get burned at the stake or you might be excommunicated from your town. Whereas on the other side of the country, if you were rich, you could say the most blasphemous things possible, but you get a pass. <laughs> I want to say the most blasphemous things possible. That'd be fun. Um, <laughs> uh, the, uh, another thing that this movie kind of does is, I mean, and, and it's not a template, it's something that already happened, but yeah, the, the rich person scandal, you know, we still have those, regularly in the news always so because I, I was just thinking now that we could have a fun adventure where you know donald trump breaks in and steals the deed to clear his legal problems I, that's what how <laughs> i want reality to run, play out <laughs> so yeah so the the legal logic in this movie unless i missed something i did i rewatched i rewatched both segments um just because i i really felt like i missed i wanted to watch the ichabod crane one twice just because of nostalgia but this one i got to the end and i was like wait a minute something's not adding up here so just to recount the beats of the a story okay it starts out and mr toad's already just being a rich asshole he's dry he's driving this horse and buggy while he's driving the horse and buggy he sees a car falls in love with the car and and i'm gonna simplify some things but 
he sees the car he get he gets mania for it so which means that like he can't stop thinking about driving a car and he's like imagining it and his friends bring him back to his house uh to toad manor they lock him up in his room and they're basically trying to like make him quit cold turkey like he's going like a train spotting heroin withdrawal sort of situation but he sneaks out in the middle of the night while he's basically on house arrest from his friends and he finds a, a fast red car that's going to a bar and the fast red car is driven by a bunch of weasels that look exactly like the weasels from who framed roger rabbit he goes inside the bar trades them the deed to toad manor in exchange for the car gets the barkeeper to sign the be a witness for the transaction and then immediately gets picked up in this stolen car um, because the weasels never owned it they had stolen it from someone but then mr toad gets caught with it in his possession and possession being nine tenths of the law i assume even in in the story he basically goes on trial and they find him guilty and he gets sentenced to like 10 years in london tower so it's a it's a story about a rich guy that gets fascinated by a car gets duped into trading all of his real estate for that stolen car and then goes to jail for owning a stolen car Here's the part that it doesn't make sense. All that part makes perfect sense. You send <laughs> Toad to London jail for 10 years, whatever. What they do, though, is, is that him and his, he gets broken out of jail, and then they break back into Toad Manor, which, according to him, was a legal transaction. He gave the deed rightfully to another party in exchange for this car. Um, so they they technically owned the deed outright, even though the car wasn't theirs to begin with. But all they had to do was break in and steal the deed back, and then all of a sudden it's theirs again. And that proves that the weasels were the bad guys and that um, the barkeep was also a bad guy. But at no point do they prove any of that in court or does anyone show evidence of any wrongdoing. The only thing that happens is they break in and they steal the deed from these guys as they're living in their legal residence. So like, what what did I miss there that they were allowed to break in? Because it's, you know, if if I get swindled <clears throat> in a bad business deal... And I give the deed away to my house to someone and then later find out that I got duped. I can't just break in and steal the deed back and like the laws on my side. Okay. I think I simplified this a lot more than you because I, I have a one sentence uh, summary. Okay. This is the Disney version of GTA Vice City. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. I got that. He just keeps you know taking cars with this fun, yeah. <laughs> but but I mean, he was they were vastly outnumbered, right? When they showed one scene where there's like thirty weasels all knocked out on the ground, but following this logic, the very next night they just have thirty weasels break in and steal the deed <clears> back, <throat> and now the weasels are again the rightful owners because apparently all you have to do to own property in this reality is steal the deed from somebody in the middle of the night, and now that's your legal property. Yeah, hence uh, that's why I want to see um, some modern versions of, of that happening. I guess that's kind of Watergate in a way. I mean, a little different, not a deed, but <laughs> the same level of logic to the, the, the Watergate scandal when you get down to it. <laughs> I guess, so. yeah, whoever owns the paper at the end of the day. Yeah. Uh, what else do I get vibes of? I got, oh, um, I just started thinking of the climax of Back to the Future 3 a little bit. Uh, as as toad is getting uh taken down by the by the uh, taken into jail with the train and all that yeah i'm <laughs> <clears throat> just gonna pop to my head a little bit mm. there's some in, there's some interesting aspects of this movie like uh the train scene first of all we're gonna we're gonna get into trains a little bit more 
it plays into the backstory of this story in, in strange ways. But that train scene, he definitely escalated. He keeps escalating, right? I think stealing a train is probably far above stealing a car at any point. But also, I just love this classic violent animation where you've got like 10 cops on the other train and they're all just blasting their, their guns at this little frog, completely unarmed, not a threat. Um, and then just, again, the, the connotation is like, they're just going to shoot an innocent frog. And if one of them hadn't missed, then it would just want to have been a Disney movie with like a frog getting his brains blown out. That's how we can tell this movie is made by Americans. Um, <laughs> they didn't have the, the bobby clubs, you know, uh, make it properly British. <laughs> are, are there no early <clears throat> British animations where the cops just unload on on the perpetrator or is it always just billy clubs and and the, uh, hello governor <laughs> there could be i i really don't know <laughs> i'm seeing what it, british animation what what is british animation <laughs> yeah i don't think they've ever been I, someone correct me if i'm wrong but i can't think of any major uk animations oh yellow submarine there's a there's one okay that <laughs> <laughs> doesn't count yeah, sure. It's made in England. <laughs> it's a cool movie. <laughs> so a, a couple of just most random notes, but the the cartoon starts out, and again, it's got Toad on the back of the carriage whipping the horse, and I've never seen a horse so happy to get whipped before in any cartoon. Like he's got a smile. I would just imagine that <clears throat> if you were a horse and someone was whipping you, you wouldn't be on the best terms with that person. Yeah, well, they're close enough that he, you know, he'll serve as witness for him in court. So I got he's got that going for him. It, it almost feels like a very abusive relationship, though. If one party <laughs> is constantly riding on your back and like physically whipping you, and uh, you have to just always be, you know, sort of agreeable to that person, it feels like a lifetime movie might be baked somewhere in this cartoon. Or again, Crowley in the North African desert. <laughs> That's, <right. laughs> That's what it sounds like. <laughs> and they they also much credit uh, to the writers, but they work in the word Worcestershire in the very opening song, uh, which was it was a nice treat. Like I actually had to make a little note. Oh, they just sung the word Worcestershire in this song. That's that's pretty nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, that's pretty impressive for sure. <laughs> um, you were gonna connect trains here. You had some train talk. Uh, yeah. So, so this is getting into the actual. Let me just uh, f- I, I gotta find the guy's name because I keep saying the author. Um, so the author was, uh, Kenneth Graham. Okay. So, so Kenneth Graham writes this particular story, this Wind in the Willows. This happens a- around the time he leaves the Bank of England. So, I'm, so let me rewind just a little bit, and this will tie into the the railroad stuff. So. He actually does come from a very affluent family, just like the, the the protagonist of the story, Mr. Toad. So his father-in-law was the invent. He also married into money, kind of like Ichabod Crane <laughs> married into money. His father-in-law was the one who created the fountain pen, the ribbon saw, pneumatic tires, meaning rubber tires that have air in them. Like he literally invented those. <laughs> along with a list of like 20 or 30 other patents that have to do with like steam technology and a whole bunch of other like very cutting edge for their time. So he, he comes from an unbelievable amount of money. Um, 
He also worked at the Bank of England and rose up through the ranks until he became the secretary of the bank and got into, I guess, a little bit of a scuffle with someone that was even higher on the totem pole that he was within the bank and said something so offensive like this other gentleman uh, didn't have decorum or like wasn't acting in a professional manner. That was like his his hot fire that he spit at this guy. And I guess <laughs> that caused this huge rift. And he decides he's going to leave the banking industry and just kind of like pursue other things. And those other things and ended up being writing about paganism, <laughs> writing and writing lots of children's stories. Um, so this particular set of stories, The Wind in the Willows, was kind of a collection of little like vignettes almost that tie together in like one specific animation that we see here. But they started as stories that he would tell his son, uh, Alistair. And Alistair, I guess, was born with a whole bunch of different sort of um, genetic issues, and he just never had a, a super healthy life. Well, Alistair decides to kill himself around age 20 by laying down on train tracks and a train runs over him. Very gruesome way to go. Uh, it was written in the obituary and almost every other biography during the, the life of Kenneth Graham that this was like an accident just kind of out of respect to him because it was like a very it was a very uh sort of taboo thing to admit that you know someone died uh, of of self-inflicted <clears throat> means but so he, he's already a little bit upset about this obviously his, his son dies around age 20 under the railroad but he also ends up writing a whole bunch of uh, esoteric poetry about railroads um, and then in this uh, in the story and then later movie adaptation, there's these references to the railroads. And he one of the the short stories that he writes is about the advent of technology and how human beings used to look at the horizon and the horizon represented this unknown um, sort of like fantasy. Like who knows what happens over the horizon? The sailors would imagine all sorts of faraway lands and monsters and adventures that you might go on that were just over the horizon. But as people got, you know, planes, trains, and automobiles, all of a sudden the horizon was way more accessible. You just start driving towards it. And it's like, you know, what's on the other end of the horizon. That's where the city's at. And once you get out of the city, that's where the country's at. So it takes away a lot of that allure, but he likened the railroads as sort of um, reinvigorating people with that same sense, because now the railroad would take you to a different horizon way farther than one that was accessible to you through like a regular, you know, car ride. So he, he had this fascination with railroads and trains and, it, and I couldn't help but imagine that there was like a very tight connection there with the way that his son died uh, on the railroad tracks. Again, I couldn't imagine this sounds like one of the most gruesome ways that you could possibly go, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, the, the mean <clears throat> Arkansas style. So I, I guess that 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 just stuck out to me because, again, he he wrote like all sorts of, of other material on railroads specifically. Yeah, I guess it's how geography affects the mind. I'm from Atlanta. That's a city that has nothing to stop it from growing. It just goes on forever and relatively hilly land. Right now, I live in a mountain valley where everything's defined. You know, there's walls. There's a train line that goes at the base of the valley, you know, which I guess is more like. It, it affects how you think about things, it affects about like going places and all of that, right? So living in, uh, in, in say English countryside or whatever would put your brain in a kind of a different mental map, which 
we're trained. Like we have lots of train geeks here. Train otaku. Uh, when I was going to work yesterday, there was a guy with a real nice camera taking shots of the train as it was pulling away. So, <laughs> um, <clears throat> but yeah, in Atlanta, and that was a train city to start with, but it's just like, now it's, you have a car or nothing. I, I guess that's what Mr. Toad thinks too. You know, I'm finished with trains. It's all car for me now. <laughs> well, and, and, and it eventually turns into planes. Yeah. And yeah, the, yeah. the name of that story, it came from his series of writings called the pagan papers and it was called the romance of the rail. Oh my. Okay. <laughs> that has a double meaning. Okay. <laughs> <clears throat> he he um, also had a, a, a few other really sort of interesting um, takeaways from those pagan papers. I, I read through almost all of them. Uh, they weren't all as notable, but like one of the examples, it was called not books, but children. This was, it was in Latin. It was like a word play, but he's, he's describing how books are like children to some people. Um, and that like, they'll go out and they'll collect books, but they'll never read the book. They'll just kind of put it on the shelf and they'll never sell the book because it's all about building this collection of, of like things that become part of your family and become like fixtures in your household. So he likens having this like large library of books as to just having a, a house full of children, which is, is kind of a weird one. And then there's another one called of smoking where he basically convinces you that smoking is a thing that everybody should do <laughs> in moderation, but that he is, he is fully in favor of smoking and not just that, but also in opium. He mentions a few times Okay, um, now like he's selling me. Miracle of opium. <laughs> yeah, don't bury the lead. Yeah, okay. Graham. <laughs> so he, um, I mean, yeah, Graham knew how to party. And he all and the, the last one that I thought was interesting was he had a story about the Olympians, but the it's a, an analogy where the Olympians are adults, and it's about how you know the actual Olympians were so busy in their cloud palace on Mount Olympus. And they never took the time to enjoy just like the, the frivolities of life and just like enjoy nature and enjoy being around animals. Although you could make an argument that Zeus definitely enjoyed being around animals quite often. <laughs> Too um, much, but, yeah. <laughs> but that the Olympians were almost like the adults and then the, that the humans were like the children that were free to go and play. I, I thought it was, a, it was an interesting uh, sort of story that he was alluding to. Something else. I thought interesting in this movie is I think it's the first time. Um, yes. Yeah, the first time that Disney has just had like animal characters and human characters and are kind of on the same level. You know, Snow White, you have the cute critters, Pinocchio, they get turned into donkeys, um, you know, Ristic cats later on. It's the, they're just cats, right. Or lady in a tramp. It's, it's an actual dog and you're just hearing what they do, but. We don't Although aristocrats melding. can play music and they can understand the music, but they can't understand the words. Right. But they don't interact with human society. Where in, in this, this is kind of an interesting, weird vibe where it's like, because uh, a lot of the police are just people, right? And then there's just Correct. people on the street. And then the police then are people, some... the judge is just a person. Uh, but yeah, the horse talks and, you know, the mole talks and, and the rat who's not actually a rat, he's a, a water mole, um, also talks. So I, I was, but yeah, I was thinking, is this the first time that Disney did that? I and probably some of the shorts do that, but or not. I'm not sure. I just, yeah, I thought that was an interesting choice to make. Uh, yeah. Cause this, this came before bed knobs and broomsticks <clears throat> and bed knobs and broomsticks. People talk to fish, um, which is almost but, on the same level, but that came way after this. 
and the fish still weren't wearing clothes and things so yeah but like this uh, is like one of them had glasses okay but here we got you know <laughs> toad and his and his his toad hall overcoat and all that sort of stuff i mean he's wearing the same thing that people do and he's subject to the same laws that people are um maybe they're more harsh on toads because uh 10 years in the tower of london for a car theft seems a bit extreme but <laughs> it was a really nice car though yeah okay good point yeah yeah you steal a lamborghini i guess you go up up the river for a bit <laughs> When, and uh, part of the, the incredulous aspect of the court scene is because he says he traded Toad Manor for the car, and that's what made a legal transaction. And <coughs> the the lawyer or the judge or whoever is trying him um, laughs about that because Toad Manor, at the time of, of this taking place, which is in like the year 1900 or so, that Toad Manor cost 100,000 um, pounds. Now, I had to look this up the the salary for the secretary of the bank of england during the time that this was written when toad manor was a hundred thousand pounds the annual salary was between 400 and 700 pounds so we're talking about a lot of of freaking money for a hundred thousand pounds to to be worth well one of my notes here is i i suppose breaking into your own estate happened a lot in 1940s europe For various reasons. <laughs> yeah. Well, one specific reason. But yeah. 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 Well, within that, probably various reasons. But yeah, I'm sure that, you know, France or whatever, if it was still there, probably the owners may have broken into some of these places. <laughs> Maybe and, not. And I, I thought this was interesting too that, that while he was working at the Bank of England, um, there were two stories. One of them was that he quarreled with uh, Walter Cunliffe who he said was no gentleman. That was the insult. Sir, you are no gentleman. And that caused like the worst rift ever. But the other uh, explanation, which is just as interesting, maybe more so, was that there was a quote-unquote political shooting incident at the bank where Graham was personally shot at three times, but all the bullets missed him. And he might have had some kind of like a PTSD situation from being the target of... I don't know what what a, the political shooting was about, but apparently it wasn't just a bank robbery. Well, I'd like to think he said, "Sir, you are no gentleman." Did yeah. a glove slap, yeah. glove slap, and that was followed <laughs> and by then a the, duel. <laughs> and he didn't realize that the guy he insulted was actually an American. So then the guns came out. Yeah, yeah. So that's where the three bullets came from. Hey, might have won the duel for all we know. Yeah, I got I got a couple other sort of cool notes here. So um, I mentioned the Pagan Papers that was published in 1894. A couple years after that, he published something called the Golden Age, which um, also ties. I mean, that ties very heavily into like the Golden Dawn and a lot of the other sort of occult uh, symbolism that I think that there's some ties to here that some of them are a little bit more subtle. And then he also came up with something called Dream Days in 1898. And inside Dream Days was a story called The Reluctant Dragon. And The Reluctant Dragon uh, is another Disney movie that we didn't watch, um, but I looked it up. And I I guess it is mostly live action that has, I think, like four different short little animatics that are kind of interspersed throughout it. But The Reluctant Dragon is is the prototypical story of sort of like sir george and the dragon but in this case the dragon is a good guy the dragon is like 
um, a, a very sympathetic protagonist style character as opposed to being like an evil monster. And this kind of leads into, um, you know, Puff the Magic Dragon. And you could almost even say like Barty or any any nice dragon or nice dinosaur character. It kind of has its stem in this reluctant dragon story. I was looking for my my vault so I, I guess my um not quite a review of that one I, I i remember that when they put out the disney vault stuff they did put that one out and i did buy it but it's not one of the ones i brought with me into japan so i guess i didn't like it that much <laughs> yeah i mean i think the fact that it was mostly live action it probably was not the great one of the greater ones it, it gets mixed up with a whole bunch of the other sort of like c and d class movies yeah, because, you know, I showed up with my Tomorrowland discs and uh, the war ones and all that sort of stuff. But yeah, Reluctant Dragon did, did not make it did not make it across the pond for me, the very large pond. <laughs> and uh, and what else? I, I don't have the, the full list of the things that his father-in-law invented. His name was Robert William William Thompson. Um, but in addition to the fountain pen and pneumatic tire, uh, I got a note here that, that this again is his stepdad. But his stepdad left school at 14, moves to Charleston in, in the United States, and within two years, he teaches himself chemistry, electricity, and astronomy, and mathematics. And then that's where he starts inventing just like no one else's business, ribbon saws, steam power, pneumatic tires. Um, so yeah, the, the dude was obviously either like a savant or, you know, he had that like elite code book where they're like okay here's a bunch of inventions that have existed forever you're allowed to take 10 off the top <laughs> everyone gets to take 10 and, and claim the rights for those that's how we we spread wealth now yep although I, i've always been fascinated by um you know tesla nikola tesla's quotes about how he put things together like he would basically like visualize the diagram without needing to put it on paper or anything so you know I, I some people would have talents like that although i do like the uh secret technology um, idea too of course but <laughs> and and speaking of tesla whose uh, main financiers ended up being the astor family uh and the astor family essentially dies on the titanic and then gets buried at sleepy hollow yeah yeah so uh, a, a notable necropolis in the end <laughs> it is it's it's a uh, very much a necropolis of the the rich and powerful yep uh did you get to all of those notes? You said it in plural, so. <laughs> uh, I did, uh, yeah. Okay, groovy, because I, I think I'm pretty much cashed out on this one, but I am, like, feeling, I feel kind of stupid we uh, missed this one on first pass. <laughs> it definitely, I think this is one you should stick in with the the Disney animated features. I guess some of the other ones, Three Caballeros, Make Mine Music, those yeah, those are iffy, but this one's got enough that's definitely worth a, a view and a, a consideration. And it's nice too. You can watch them in, in different parts. Like the, as soon as it starts, I see that it's like an hour and eight minutes, and I was like, "Oh, okay, that's nice." You know, I am. I'm not getting to anything too bad. And then there's like a nice little intermission. You can take a pause. They don't really relate to each other, so it's it's very easy to uh, to watch these. And honestly, since I had seen the Ichabod Crane ones so many times in the past, uh, it just felt like rewatching an old favorite. Yeah, this one it's it's weirdly forgotten. We forgot it, even though it has a ride and stuff, you know. But it it doesn't deserve that. It's it's. I'd rather watch this than say Lady and the Tramp again. <laughs> yeah, although I I also need to just just throw this out here just to be controversial, but 
the actual story of Mr. Toad, I found very boring. <laughs> it was like, it's a rich guy that wants a car and then gets sent to jail and then his friends break him out. Great. Yeah, the, the main the main benefit of the first segment in particular is kind of just the animation's like pretty he's cool. so relatable this this rich nepotism baby <laughs> that wants to collect car motor cars at the turn of the century when it was still popular <laughs> to have a, a, a horse-drawn carriage you know what a relatable story that everyone can relate to <laughs> jay leno can <laughs> except uh i guess mr toad didn't let an engine blast him in the face but uh yeah <laughs> I don't know if you got that news last year. Jay Leno took it from an exhaust pipe. Oh yeah, oh, yeah. burned his face off. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think actually my my favorite takeaway of that movie in particular was how close. I don't know if you saw that. How close those weasels were to the weasels in Who Framed Roger Rabbit. I had to look up side by side, and the only difference is that the weasels in Who Framed Roger Rabbit are wearing zoot suits, um, so they've got more of like a 1920s vibe to them. That's a plus but, up. It's it's the exact same weasels in my opinion, like all the way down to the character design. Just ignore the clothing. Well, of course, we'll talk about that movie, but I mean, they, there's lots of things in Roger Rabbit where they just take very minor characters from '40s flicks and, and put them in, right? Which is mm-hmm. part of the genius of that, and and just the licensing and that it was probably like five minutes licensing all of that in the same movie was even possible. So, <laughs> and they took advantage of it um what <clears throat> this is pretty much going to go straight to air so what's up in your universe oh man uh so many things although the the number one that i always like to pump is just this mk ultra comic i'm working on a the the finally the long-awaited follow-up it's not a sequel to mk ultra but it is the second paranoid pamphlet and it is called the homunculus owner's manual And it basically describes how to create a homunculus from scratch, what to do with the homunculus, (laughs) Um, you know, spoiler alert, you basically decapitate them and pour their blood on your feet or some other cool thing, depending on what superpower you want. Uh, It it tells you how to ethically kill a homunculus, and then it gives an entire breakdown of the origins of homunculus from... Um, sort of like Taoist belief to medieval alchemy all the way into sort of modern times. Um, so this this is uh, in conjunction with Juan Ayala of the one-on-one podcast, AKA the homunculologist who has become one of the world's foremost experts on homunculi. So yeah, that this will be an incredibly uh, offensive and entertaining pamphlet on uh, on the homunculus owner's manual. So look out for that very, very soon. At paranoidamerican.com. So they got the chick track look on the outside. Does it have it on the inside too? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I'll, I'll, <laughs> okay. So yeah, the, yeah. the way that they all look is they've got that classic oh, chick yeah. track style all the way down to the font, you know, the everything. Like I, I tried to match that aesthetic, and the homunculus pamphlet is no different. Um, actually, the homunculus pamphlet artwork looks way closer to traditional comic book artwork. It's got uh, the, the style is amazing. Like I'm, I'm really excited about this one. Uh, and it's, and I don't want to give too much away, but there, there might also be an actual homunculus starter kit that we release in the near future to go along with the pamphlet. So it'll come with all the supplies that you need to actually grow your own homunculus at home. 
maybe I've asked you before. Do you have a favorite chick track? Uh, I do. It's not. It's it's not the weirdest one. There are some absolutely weird chick tracks that get into very offensive territory. But I think my favorite one is just one that's about trick or treating is the devil. Um, just because it it reminds me so much of of the Water Boy and uh, Bobby Boucher, where his mom just tells him everything's the devil. School's the devil, and Vicky Valencourt's <laughs> the devil, and foosball is the devil. Uh, and that's that's pretty much where my introduction to chick tracks were because I found I found when I was in the military I found one on a biker. It was called like Badass Bob or something like that, Bad Bob. Um, and it was just about how bikers are the devil, and if you see someone with tattoos, then they might be the devil and he and the the culmination of almost every one of these books is that these people do horrible things and at the very end they give themselves up to jesus and then everything is forgiven so you know bad bob does all these horrible things to people but he goes he gets to go to heaven because he says i'm sorry at the very end well the trick-or-treat one (laughs) not so easy the there's (laughs) actually parents and kids that end up going to hell because they bought into trick-or-treating and didn't realize that that was just a one-way ticket uh, to eternal pain and suffering. Uh, my favorite is Angels with a question mark. They started as a Christian rock group and became slaves to rock. Just, That's a very good one. <clears throat> was it, how come that preacher stopped us on our rock music? We were putting Jesus in it, just like all the other rock groups who play <laughs> in churches. There are Christian <laughs> rock groups that are hot. They're really getting down, man. <laughs> yeah, man. <laughs> they're 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 um, the manager that makes them stray from Christian rock is Lou Siffer. That's, that's great. Um, <laughs> I'm looking for my favorite line. Is it like uh, Lou Perlman? <laughs> yeah, Lou Siffer. Yeah. Here's here's the lyrics to their song. We're going to rock, 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 rock with the rock. <laughs> the, the you know, there's a um, there's a, a rap version <laughs> of that same one. I think it's called Big Daddy. Oh yeah, um, get that. Is it Big Daddy or is it is it Doomtown? But but essentially, at towards towards the end of. Uh, Jack T. Chick's life, he ended up signing on a, a black artist. I can't remember his name for the life of me right now. He was a phenomenal artist, but they basically ended up taking a bunch of Chick's classic tracks and then reoriented them towards, you know, like the black audience. So they would put them into like the black Baptist churches. And that was one of the adaptations is they took angels and they turn <laughs> it into like a guy that wants to get big into the the hip hop world. But his manager is the devil. Essentially, it's it's the same story. You just tweaked it a little bit. I think there was like <laughs> around 10 different tracks that got that kind of a treatment. That's right. Uh, here we go. My favorite line from this one is then I'll give you a little wedding present, some AIDS. <laughs> okay here here, here's a moment of truth it's all over everything's ashes bobby's died of aids jim od'd and don is into vampirism (laughs) sounds like don's doing okay i don't know (laughs) not dead so good for him (laughs) oh wow jim dies on stage that's 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 great the ods on stage it's amazing so th- this might be a good time to point out too i do a an, another podcast occasionally um called the reality czars with my friend nate uh and tony and um every once in a while we actually jack chick had a real comic book series called the crusaders uh which wasn't just little pamphlets but they were you know actual floppy like six by ten comics 
and we've been reading them and doing all the voices and everything uh, <laughs> on podcasts, which you can imagine gets pretty offensive at some times. It's definitely not a YouTube thing. Uh, <laughs> it's on Rockfin and Rumble. I don't even know if it's on Apple or anything, but yeah. And uh, Nate does all the voice, most of the voices. I do the ones that won't necessarily get me fired. I hope. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, if, if you want to hear some really some weird out there check out our our live readings of the crusaders on reality's ours as for a caught disney i guess next up is the rescuers which i'm not sure i've seen uh, i've seen a little i'll explain that when we get to it um <laughs> you, this, you just saw the part with the boobs in it <laughs> i just saw the part of the boobs in it yeah <laughs> uh i do other podcasts as well you'll find these on patreon at podcastio podcastius if you want to be a patron that's great but if not it's just a place to find them all where i talk about the twilight zone on time enough podcast we're just wrapping up a run on uh the 60s tv show the prisoner with in prison in prison another prison cast and we've started doing films and filth where we have taken the top 100 and top bottom bottom 100 as arbitrarily chosen by imdb users and are uh, talking about all of those films so yeah okay um, i i guess i'm gonna go uh go for a little drive now i was about to go for a drunk drive i was man that doesn't even feel right to say anymore so actually i'm just walking rice fields if we're gonna be realistic so oh uncle matthew is so quirky (laughs) (laughs) driving into walls yeah Page. Twist the propeller. 